Hi, everyone, and welcome to Better by Association, an original podcast produced by the Texas Society of Association Executives. I'm Katie Barker, Marketing and Communications Director for TSAE. And I'm Stephen Stout, Executive Director for TSAE. We are so glad to be back today on the podcast for another great interview. Season two is on a roll, and it feels like we are right back in the swing of things, Katie. It really does. And I want to get your thoughts on something, Stephen. Have you ever listened to the very famous New Heights podcast with the Kelsey brothers? Oh, yeah. The Jason Kelsey and Travis Kelsey, right? Yes. I'm yeah. very proud of you for knowing that. <laughs> Thanks. I thought you might know them. It's one of the top podcasts in the countries right now. Oh. And one thing about them is they refer to their listeners as 92 percenters. Have you heard that? Are you aware of that? No, I am aware of that, actually. I can... I can't say I know exactly what it means, but I am sure it has something to do with football, right? <laughs> it does. I won't get into the full explanation, but I, I say that because I wanted to address something. I know that you talked before about saying 100% and that you, it's not something you like to hear yourself say, but now I can't help but hear it every time you say it. So <laughs> that's not you, but I think we can flip the script on it. The more I think about our podcast, and all of our loyal listeners out there, I think of them as 100 percenters. How do you feel about that? Oh, I like uh, taking my stumble and turning it into something beautiful. Yeah, that makes sense because I feel like association execs put 100 percent into everything they do. Uh, That's what I'm thinking. You know, maybe 120 percent, 110. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So are we going to start calling our folks 110 percenters? 100 percenters, but yes. 100 percenters, yes. Let's keep it around, Stephen. 100 percenters, that's easy. That's not what we're doing. Not so all of you loyal listeners out there, the ones that we know and love and count on to listen to these episodes, you are now our 100 percenters. 100 percenters, I love it. This day forward, you shall be known as that. <laughs> but we do have a really great conversation today. Today we'll be talking to Jeff DeCanya, a foresight practitioner. Foresight? When you say foresight, are we talking the future? You betcha. We are talking future. So, Katie, how do you approach the future? Do you think about it very often? Do you spend some time thinking about what's coming up next? I wish I could say I did, honestly. I had a feeling you were going to ask me this. If I'm being totally honest, between my personal life and my work life, it's a day-to-day -day situation over here. <laughs> I'm getting through the day, and I do make annual New Year's, not necessarily resolutions, but goals for myself, for my family, and career-wise. Don't tell our guests this, but I do feel like I don't look probably 10, 20 years in the future, but I can take it year by year at this point. <laughs> You're like, oh, well, I want to do baby steps. I'm not really ready for the long jump into decades in ahead, but I, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Okay. Tell me you what you're thinking about the future. Like you, I know I should be, but I don't as much as I probably should. I always like, like you, some days I, I just need to get to the day. But there are times, like you said, the New Year resolutions, I always think, oh, like I'm going to really be focused on moving forward and like how to be better organized and to be better, keep a focus on the future. But it is hard. It's, I feel like it's a muscle we need to flex and I don't flex enough. I could not agree. I think this is going to be a really great mind opening conversation for me. Yeah. Mind opening or mind blowing. One of those two. But uh, let's get into it and hear what the expert has to say. In this episode, we are speaking with Jeff DeCanya, Executive Advisor for Foresight First, LLC. Jeff is a longtime association community contributor, and he will facilitate the opening session of this year's TSAE CEO Forum. His session is called Looking Toward the 2030s and Beyond, Challenging Questions for Association Boards and CEOs. And that's taking place on Monday, March 4th in Fort Worth. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on Better by Association. 
Yay. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> thanks, Katie and Stephen. It's a pleasure to uh, join you for this conversation, also for the session in March. Yeah, we're excited. We don't often get industry celebrities on our podcast, Jeff, so we're very excited to have you here today. We have a lot of questions for you. We're expecting you to blow our minds. No pressure. Uh, but we will start you off easy because we ask the same question of every one of our guests. I've been in the space for a while. Not many of us went to school to do what we do or had any sort of formal training about before getting thrust into this workforce of association management. So we always like to ask our guests, what is your fall-in story? How did you fall into this industry and your current role? Yeah. In college, I started out, I was involved in a couple of organizations in college and right after where I was organizing events, organizing a statewide convention and then organizing a national convention, national meeting. Okay. And I learned how to do that reading books. And having done those two things, I applied for a job at an association. It was the Business and Professional Women of the USA, BPW USA in early 1992, and the meetings manager at the time, name was Jessica Brim, took the experience that I had done on a volunteer basis organizing these two meetings and took it into consideration for this job and hired me as meetings assistant and then meetings coordinator, and that was my first association job, and I just worked my way from there. I did make a couple of attempts to move in different directions in my career. I went to graduate school in the late 90s and thought that I'd be moving on to something else. But ultimately, I kept coming back to associations and I concluded at some point in there that rather than me choosing, associations had chosen me for some reason. <laughs> and so it became what I decided to do. And now I'm 32 years in and I'm glad that I've stuck around. Yeah. So you got a taste of it in college and then built on that, which is pretty impressive. Not many I don't know people that had a lot of experience in college and then moved into the space. You were already ahead of that curve there, my friend. Yeah. And I, I started out, as I said, started out in the meeting space, worked my way into education, and then worked through that and then went out on my own in 2002. And now I've just started my 23rd year of being speaker, advisor, and consultant wow. associations. Wow. Good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. And I want to brag, but I also started out as a meeting assistant. So maybe there's something with that position that people get elevated to greatness, Jeff. <laughs> well, that's wow. definitely true in your case, Stephen. Maybe not so much in that. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. I love that the meetings brought you in, you guys. Yeah, me too. And kept you here. Jeff, we're so glad you made it into this industry and that you're here with us today. Your work centers on foresight and specifically the board's duty of foresight. Those are new terms for me. Can you help explain that? Sure, Katie. So I think foresight is something that we're talking a lot more about in associations. So certainly it's been a, a subject of, in recent years that's gotten a lot more attention. And there are many definitions of the word foresight. The definition that I use of foresight, a lot of the other definitions are quite technical. They have a lot of words. The definition that I use is, I think, maybe a little bit more straightforward, that foresight is an intentional process of learning with the future. And what that means is that we're really asking ourselves a question. And the question is, what could the future look like plausibly, right? To distinguish it in a simple way, a prediction is if I were to say to you on January 1, 2034, this will happen. That's a prediction, right? 
if I were to say to you on January 1, 2034, there's a 75% chance that this will happen. That's a forecast. I'm really asking here, the question is on January 1, 2034, what could the world look like? What plausibly could it look like? How could it plausibly be more favorable to our organization? How could it plausibly be more unfavorable? How could we potentially experience the unthinkable, the unthinkable worst case scenario in that time frame? So we push ourselves to look ahead, to imagine what the world could look like. We use data, we use information, we use our imaginations and try to construct what those futures could look like. That's really what foresight is. And then by exploring those futures, by asking questions, we can then bring ourselves back to the present day and say, okay, now having gotten a preview of what the future could look like, what do we start doing right now? What decisions do we need to make? What do we need to learn? so that we can navigate our way toward the futures that might be more favorable for us and away from futures that we would like to avoid of one type or another. And so building on that idea of what foresight is, in 2014, I wrote an article for Associations Now that included among the ideas in there, the idea that the board has a duty of foresight. And I know we'll talk more about that specifically, but I think the thing I want to say about it now is that the idea that the board has a duty of foresight was a radical notion in 2014. And I think even though I've been talking about it for the last 10 years, and so I'm marking this milestone in 2024, I think it remains a radical notion because it is different from what we typically expect of boards. So the two things are obviously connected. The two ideas are obviously related to each other, but that's how I like to talk about and explain what foresight is and how it relates to the board's duty of foresight. I love that. And I appreciate the explanation. To be totally honest with you, this is a this is going to be a stretch for me. So this conversation, I'm, I'm open to it. And no, I appreciate that. It, it, it sounds intriguing. To be fair, Katie, I feel like it's a stretch for a lot of people. I don't yeah. think it's something that even having done this for a while, obviously, I know Jeff, I've seen Jeff's sessions before. I remember going into Jeff's session for the first time, one of his sessions and just come, my notepad, had, I feel like had smoke coming off of it. So I was trying to keep up with all the things I should be doing. But it's one of those things where, and this is before the pandemic, all of these things looking forward. So I, I don't think you're alone. I think a lot of people maybe don't put as much weight into foresight as maybe they should, especially after learning all the things, talking to Jeff and seeing Jeff's research and things of that nature. It really does like slap you in the face, like what weight wakes you up and it's what I need to be doing this. I need to be focusing on this with my board. Which leads me into my next question, Jeff. Everyone loves a good origin story. So what is the origin story behind the board's duty of foresight? And I'm curious, how has it evolved over the last 10 years or so? So the origin story is, I mentioned a moment ago that I wrote this article for Associations Now in 2014. And I actually wrote a couple of articles that year. And one was focused on a company that everyone knew that was incredibly successful over a long period of time. How did it sustain that success? And that was Amazon. And then I wrote an article about another company that everyone would know. And how did that company go from being extraordinarily successful and dominant, really, to being an afterthought? How did it lose that success? And that company was BlackBerry, Research in Motion, mm. that became BlackBerry. So the focus of the 2014 article in which I coined the term the Board Studio Foresight was about BlackBerry. And what I learned in my research on BlackBerry over a long period of time was that among the, the various issues that the company had, and of course, we've learned a lot in the 10 years since about all the problems at BlackBerry, 
And just for context, it's important to know, I think a lot of us understand this intuitively, but at the time, in the late 90s and the, in the early 2000s, and even going into the mid-2000s, BlackBerry was the number one technology company in the world, not just the number one handset manufacturer, but the most dominant technology company in the world. We talked about it all the time. People had these devices. They called them Crackberry because they were so addictive. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. They, they had this incredible business model. They were so dominant. So you think about the dominant technology companies of 2024. BlackBerry was that in the late 90s and into the 2000s. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. And how could that have happened? Yeah. And one of the things that I uncovered in my research was that really the board and management of that company had failed to anticipate a world in which their business model would not be dominant, in which their products would not be dominant, in which they were not the dominant player overall. And I simply wrote in this article that the board had failed at its duty of foresight to anticipate how the world could be different for BlackBerry. And I felt strongly that was something that associations needed to be doing as well, that, that boards had a responsibility not just to imagine the foreseeable consequences of their decisions, which might fall more neatly under the duty of care, but to really learn with the future and try to anticipate how that world would go. And that was really part of the original definition of the duty of foresight, this shared responsibility to learn as much as possible with the future, building on the definition that I shared earlier about what foresight is. And I think over the last 10 years, the evolution of the duty of foresight, the evolution of the definition that was quite stable for a long period of time. And then you mentioned earlier, Stephen, that we, we had a global pandemic and that was a tremendous disruptor. And so about two and a half years into the 2020s, so after we had gotten through maybe the worst of the lockdown period, I started to think about, okay, what were the, the implications, the consequences that had been wrought by the pandemic and how should the duty of foresight evolve? And so I redefined the duty of foresight. I came up with what I refer to as the next definition of the duty of foresight in September of 2022. And that really focused on the idea that boards, it requires them. I talk about, I write it in a way where it says the duty of foresight requires boards to stand up for their successors' futures. That we need our boards to be the group that says we are here to ensure that those who will follow us will be able to benefit from what our association does, what our profession does, what our industry does, because if they don't do it, I don't know who else will. And part of executing on that duty includes intentional learning, right? There has to be an intentional learning process around the future. There has to be the willingness to make sacrifices in the short term that will benefit those who will follow us and to take a long-term view on how the board will act, that long-term action perspective. So it has been an evolution. It will continue to evolve. I use the term next definition because I know there'll be another one at some point down the road. But for right now, this is the definition that I'm using, which represents where we are in the mid-2020s and looking toward the 2030s. Yeah. So like foresight 2.0, like it's evolving a little bit. And then What's interesting is because so many boards talk about how they should be looking at who's replacing them on the board, look behind them and, and put someone in their seat. And I think this sort of grows on that as far as not only look at who will be filling your seat in a few years, but also what will they be talking about? What will the organization be focusing on? So it's, it weaves nicely into the recruitment sort of space of the board of directors. So that's really interesting. That's a, a unique perspective about how to approach the evolution of your boards. 
Well, and yeah, and, and I agree that's an element of it, but I just want to even sharpen that a little further to say when I talk about successors, yes, we should certainly should be thinking about the people who will come into our organizations in these next few years. But I really want boards to be challenging themselves, pushing themselves to be thinking about long-term successors, people that they will never know personally, people who will come into their organizations later in this decade, into the 2030s and beyond. How are they going to leave their associations better than how they found them and really bring a stewardship perspective to their work? And that begins with the duty of foresight. In many ways, the duty of foresight is core to the idea of the, how we want to, how we think, how I believe boards should be functioning right. as we look toward the rest of this decade and put your focus on the people that you will never know and how can you leave it better for them. And it changes your mindset about why you're sitting at that table or why you're you know, operating in virtual space on Zoom. Why am I here? Every board member, every director and officer needs to know why they're there. And I think the duty of foresight and this idea that we've got to leave it better than how we found it, it provides a compelling reason for being a part of a board that is different than the way we have typically thought about board service. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about foresight, but at the same time, looking in the past as examples. So it's like this timeline it's just an interesting contrast. And I'm curious, talking about the board, thinking about who is going to be a successor to me that I've never even met before, again, stretching your mind in that way, what's the most significant challenge for a board and CEOs that they need to overcome to bring greater foresight to this work? I think that there are a number of challenges, and I think we tend to focus a lot on time, like how much time do we have for this? I've always felt that time is not really the issue. I've always felt that the real issue is attention. Mm. We don't get all of our board members' attention, right? They have day jobs, right? They have other right. things going on. They have their own work. They have their own families. They have their own lives. They have other things they're involved in. That We only get partial attention from them. And it's highly fragmented attention, right? Because it's not always consistent and they can, you know, we're all much more easily distracted in today's environment. We have a thousand things going on. We have distraction machines that we carry around with us in our hands that go by brand names like iPhone. And we're challenging ourselves all the time with to maintain some level of attention. So I think it's an attention challenge more so than a time challenge. It's an energy challenge. Everyone is feeling exhausted. Yeah. Everyone is running a thousand miles an hour. And so they're feeling a level of burnout that's real. Right. And so we've got to be better at helping manage the attention, helping manage the energy, as well as managing the time. Another challenge here is managing and overcoming, really confronting the orthodox beliefs that exist within our organizations, the deep seated assumptions we make about how the world works. We may be making assumptions about a world that no longer exists. Right. And we are operating on the basis of orthodox beliefs that are not necessarily helping us. In fact, they're often quite detrimental. And, and my view of the impact of orthodox beliefs on associations has shifted over the course of the last 15 years since I've been talking about it. When I started, I saw them as, okay, these are irritating, they're annoying, we have to pay attention to them, but they weren't a major issue. And now in 2024, I think orthodoxy is probably the single greatest short-term threat that we face because... We are building our organizations on a past way of looking at things that is incompatible with where we're headed as we look toward the rest of this decade and into the 2030s. So 
I think those are some of the challenges, addressing issues of attention, addressing issues of, of orthodoxy. I think it's quite natural for all of us to feel a sense of trepidation, a sense of fear, a lot of emotion when we think about the future, when we try to learn with the future. So there's a human aspect to this in terms of that fear, in terms of that emotion that we have to overcome. I think we have to be forthright in thinking about how we're going to address some of these issues so that we can put foresight, really center it in the way the board works, because all those issues we're grappling with, in some ways, they pale in comparison to the issues that our successors are going to face as we look toward the rest of this decade and beyond. What's on the plate for them is ex extremely uh, scary in some cases. We've got to do what we can to try to make it easier on them, and I think that's the first step for us to take. A good point, Jeff, because I, I feel like we've gotten so far into, we put all the board documents in a digital book. Uh, everyone uh, needs to have their laptops and computers to be a part of the board meeting, or even some board meetings are still meeting virtually. I like your comparison, like you're competing for this attention, right? Uh, you're sitting in a room and, and everyone has their computer up and you're like, are they looking at the board book or are they checking their email? Or you have folks who maybe take, I don't know a better word for it, the ostrich approach where they just want to put their head in the sand and let's just talk about what's happening for this quarter and let's not worry about 2030, 2040, 2050. But I really love that you painted it as this extends into a, a board duty. There you have a fiduciary duty and you have now you have a duty of foresight as part of your service. I, I feel like that probably a good approach to bring that up in the nominating process and talk about what you're looking for in board members, someone with a strategic view, someone who's able to look to the future. Because that I think that's a skill set in itself that maybe we all haven't flexed very much as far as a those business muscles. And and just to build on that for a second, I, I just want to say a few years ago, I wrote an article for associations now on the idea of designing the director experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that to your point, Stephen, I think we, we must take seriously the idea that the way that we compose our boards, like board composition is a huge issue in 2024 as it really has been up till now. But it, it's going to become an even more significant issue that how we compose our boards, the methods we use, the way we identify people, the way we recruit them, the way that they are selected, the way that they are oriented, the way that they are developed in serving on boards is a huge set of issues, incredibly consequential when we're thinking about really trying to make some of the most critical decisions facing our organizations in their history that will be made in this decade, right? We still have a little over five years to go in this decade, but we are pushing toward a decade. And this is something we're going to talk more about during the CEO forum in March. We're pushing toward a decade that I've already started describing in my writing as the threatening 30s. And the reason for that is because the threats that we're going to face more acutely in the 2030s are already here. They're yeah. already present. We are already seeing the threats of social decay and technological surrender and environmental collapse and economic inequality and political disruption. We're seeing these issues already unfolding. And it sounds bleak, and I, I don't want to make people unhappy, but we do have to confront the reality yeah. of things. So board composition is a huge consideration right. that we're going to have to take more seriously. And designing director experience was an attempt to offer associations a way to think about bringing intentionality to the work of designing the experience that they want directors to have so that the directors and officers 
can perform at the highest possible level, given the nature of the challenges before them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I think so. we look at so many different things when we look at composition of boards and recruitment of boards. And I feel like this is just another layer that needs to be added when looking at how you're going to build your future board. It's just really good stuff. But also leads me into my next question, Jeff. So thank you for setting me up. Given everything that's happening in the world, as you mentioned, so much is happening. What should association boards and CEOs prioritize right now? There are so many issues <laughs> facing us in 2024, and we could talk just about those, but I'll highlight a couple of things and then, then give you what I might characterize as a more unorthodox answer, which sort of comes from what we were just talking about. I think right now, the issue that I'm very focused on with boards that I think boards should be looking at is the impact of artificial intelligence. Okay. Uh, and how that is going to affect our professions and industries, how it's going to affect our organizations, how it's going to affect human beings, all of us as human beings, how it's going to affect our world. I think we have a huge opportunity and also a huge responsibility to play a role in shaping where artificial intelligence goes as a socio-technical issue. We're, we're not going to be at the, at the front edge Sure. technological development with regard to AI, and that's not our purview, but we have a huge role to play and we have to get this right. We have to be on the right side of this question to ensure that artificial intelligence is something that serves humanity versus us serving it. And I don't mean that in the robots and Skynet are taking over thing. <laughs> I mean that in terms of how artificial intelligence is already and will continue to reshape human agency, making sure that we are the ones making decisions, not turning over all that agency to machine intelligence, human contribution, how we participate at work, our sense of empathy. We should be directing our emp empathy toward one another and not getting into very divisive conversations about, for example, I hear AI advocates talking about AI won't take your job, but someone using AI will take your job. That's a threat. They think of that as a pithy statement. Yeah. To me, I hear that as a threat. Right. And you're saying to people, like, you better do this or you might become obsolete. Or else, I don't like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't like that sentiment, right? I think we should be instead having more empathic conversations with a little more humility in which we say, you know what? These are important technologies. They do have value. They can benefit humanity, but they should be benefiting humanity in a way that we determine right. collectively as a society, as a country, in our organizations versus that being decided by a handful of powerful companies and a handful of powerful and wealthy tech billionaires in California, Silicon Valley, and in China, and maybe a few other places, we should be focusing on making that happen. So artificial intelligence is a huge issue. It's been occupying a lot of my attention. I think clearly we are must be looking at climate as a huge issue and how that affects what we do in associations, how it affects our current stakeholders, how it'll affect our successors. We know that we're likely to crash through some of the impacts that we thought might occur later will occur sooner. There's all kinds of questions around climate, but I think in many ways, again, it goes back to my answer in the previous question. I think what we should be focusing on is how to prepare our boards for these and other issues that are already emerging, right? And how to make sure that our boards are ready to address these issues in some kind of meaningful way as we move deeper into this decade. So I would say that among all the things that are happening right now and all the various challenges and all the upheaval that we see and that will come in the years ahead, all the tough decisions that we're going to grapple with, that 
in many ways, the, the critical thing we should be focusing on, especially this year, is helping association boards become more. I think that's the issue that I've, I'm focusing my attention on. Association boards must become more, and that's the challenge I, I would like to see us tackle. Oh, I love that. I, I feel like that should be a t-shirt that we sell now. Associations boards must become more. I love it. <laughs> I do too. And yeah, it's a big statement. But actually, can you elaborate a little bit more on what that means? So I've been phrasing it this way for a while now. And people, Katie, as you did, you asked that question, what do you mean become more? And there's more to say, but I'll say I'll start with this, which is I think association boards must become more than they have been historically, more than they are today, more than they imagine that they can be. I think we need to be setting up our boards for you've got a, a significant set of responsibilities. Our stakeholders and successors are looking to you. You are part of a continuum that extends throughout history. We were talking about this earlier. You have predecessors and you have successors. And your predecessors got you to this place in 2024 and through a combination of factors. And that included luck, but also through other aspects of how they navigated that situation. Could they have done more? for us. Maybe we would have liked for them to do more for us than they did. But regardless of what they did and what our predecessors did, we know more than our predecessors did. We have learned a lot more, especially in these last few years. We have lost a tremendous amount in these last few years. So there's been a lot of pain. There's been a lot of suffering. And for a lot of people, it continues. And so our boards need to rise to the occasion to become more than they think that they can be and recognize what they need to do. For me, this is really about saying, how do we make them fit for purpose? How do we ensure that our boards in 2024 and the years ahead, that they are fit for purpose given the full scope of the issues that we're facing? Fit for purpose is just another way of saying association boards must become more because that's the purpose. Fundamentally, boards are human systems that are guiding human systems, namely our associations, our industries and professions, into an unknown future, right? Or at least a partially known future. So how do they, as a human system, function at the highest possible level of performance so that they are fit for purpose for the task before them, which is not an easy one, but it's the one that we need them to fulfill? I think that's interesting, Jeff, because I've seen board members who come on and on different boards, not, not necessarily at TSC, who think it's a, a resume builder or an opportunity for networking, which it is, uh, don't get me wrong, that uh, has that purpose too. But when they really get into the nitty gritty and the, the work of it all, you can see sometimes you see the, the deer in headlights looks when people are like, oh, we're actually doing stuff here. This is not just, I get my badge here earlier, or I get to hang out with these great people for dinner and things. But then like when they roll up their sleeves and do the work, there are some people who jump right in and some people need to be slowly guided into the pool because they're like, well, this is not what I signed up for. I, I thought we were just having beer and then talking about annual convention party and then we were going to wrap up and, and move on. Board service is different now. And I feel, I, I feel like it's continually changing. And I think this is a good conversation to have because it's very unique at meeting that different than corporate in my opinion. I just wanted to comment on a couple of things you said, because you used a phrase that I have heard so many times over the course of my career. This isn't what I signed up for. I've had people come up to me and tell me that privately, directors, officers, people who were just about to join boards. This isn't what I signed up for. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about 
designing the director experience. That question should never come up right. when someone's in the room or close to the room. Because the thing we have to understand, board service in associations is not a volunteer role. That's orthodoxy. It is a voluntary role. And that is different, right? Yeah. Setting aside for the moment, right? The idea that being a volunteer in association is not the same thing as being on the board because volunteers generally do not have fiduciary responsibility in the way that directors and officers do. They're not right. covered by insurance. They volunteer serving on a committee or task force is unlikely to be named on a lawsuit facing the association, which is different from being a director or officer yeah. of the association. So setting aside some of the legalities that make it different from being a board member versus being a volunteer. No one ends up on boards by accident. <laughs> I've been roped into committees. I've been voluntold. I've been nomineered right. into committees and task forces <laughs> over the course of my career. No one ends up on a board by accident. You get asked, would you like to be on the board? Yeah. You get told, hey, guess what? You've been nominated. Hey, guess what? You've been elected. There are several steps that go into the process of putting someone on a board. No one's there by accident. So if you're there because you chose it, it's right. voluntary and you have to keep choosing it every day. So that's the first part. No one should ever say, this is not what I signed up for because we need to do a better job of helping them make sure they understand what it is they're signing up for. And then the second point that I wanted to make was that I totally get that people choose it, at least in part, out of self-interest. I've been on boards. I've been a board member of ASAE. I've been on other boards. I've been the chair of a national nonprofit. You're there because you want to do it, right? You have some self-interest. You see the value of having that on your resume. I get it. So there's nothing wrong with that, but that can't right. be the primary motivation. Right. And nevertheless, the message that I like to deliver to boards is that if you're looking for the hook in why you should be doing the kinds of things that I encourage them to do, is that if you're looking for the benefit to you, doing it this way, taking it seriously in this way, setting a higher standard of stewardship, governing, and foresight, which is the way I talk about it with them, becoming fit for purpose, helping the board become more, you will benefit in so many ways that it's hard for me to articulate them all. You will get closer to the best possible version of yourself. You will become a more interesting candidate for jobs. I have directors and officers that I've worked with over the years who have said to me, I take the things that we've learned in these sessions and I use them in my job. I use them yeah. in my church. I use them in my community. They apply the same thinking to other ways of doing things, and it makes them better in so many other ways. And I'm not saying that's me. I'm saying that's them right? using yeah. what they've learned to help themselves become better. So the self-interested part of this is that you can use this way of thinking in other ways, and you will become a more attractive candidate for other things you want to do. And guess what? It'll also benefit your association, and it will benefit your stakeholders and successors. So it's all about mutual benefit in all of this versus seeing as something where we have to, I've got to give something up in order to do this. You're actually getting something by thinking about it in this way. Yeah, that's such a, that's a great point. Now let's take a quick break to hear a message from TSAE. Steven, did you know that the Texas Society of Association Executives, our organization, has over 975 members? Oh man, if I did know that. It has been amazing watching us grow this year, and I think now is the time for all of our listeners, or 100%ers as we're now calling them, to join our TSE family. Our membership renewal season has officially kicked off. It has. Not only does TSAE produce this podcast, but we also offer over 100 educational events a year, including our signature events like the Women's Summit, TSAE Open at Topgolf, 
CEO strategies, socials, learn at lunches, and our new ideas annual conference. We offer these and so much more as resources to help you navigate the challenges of association life. But most importantly, TSAE offers community. Yes, we are proud to say that our organization is a very supportive community of like-minded individuals who are doing incredible things in the space of association management. If you want to get connected and find your community, join or renew your TSE membership today. Visit tsae.org for more information or contact TSAE Membership and Engagement Director Brandon Owens. One of the things, since we're talking like the boards and CEOs, I'm curious, how can association CEOs work with the boards to help them become fit for purpose? I think it starts with a conversation. I think it starts with a conversation about, let's take a hard, close look at where we are in 2024, an honest conversation. And let's start asking ourselves some more challenging questions. Do we feel prepared to be able to grapple with the issues that we know are happening in our profession, in our industry, in our country, in society, right? Because we are not insulated from them. We are completely mm -hmm. affected by them, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's climate, whether it's human inequality, whether it's ideological extremism or any of the other issues that we see affecting our environment. It's a very noisy, very complex, often incomprehensible, increasingly nonlinear kind of environment in which our organizations are operating. That's not going to change. That's only going to intensify as we look toward the second half of this decade. Are we capable of being adaptive as an organization to this environment? Are we capable as a board of being adaptive to this environment? A hard, honest question. And I'm guessing that for most associations, an honest discussion around that question will result in a no, right? Or maybe not as much as we would like to be. Mm -hmm. And so then you start having additional conversations around who needs to be in this room. How do we start moving closer to that? How do we evaluate all the aspects of our work, everything that contributes to what we do as a board, what we do as an organization, and start to shift our thinking toward the future? Ultimately, I think a board becomes fit for purpose and CEOs can help with this by shifting the orientation of the board and everyone working with the board toward the future versus seeing their work as a continuation of the past. That the more that they can reorient their thinking toward where we're going, the more likely that they are able to see themselves as a decision-making group that needs to operate in a different way than it has historically and operate in a way that is consistently fit for purpose. Yeah, I love that. On the same lines as, as you're talking about, as we look for the rest of this decade and into the 2030s, what is like your best piece of advice for association boards? The preoccupying question of my professional life is what will our successors say about us? Mm. And so that question goes into everything that I do. It goes into every article that I write, every presentation that I give, every time I do a podcast conversation like this one. I'm always thinking about what will our successors say about us? And I'm thinking about it for myself, of course, but I'm thinking about it with boards and CEOs. I'm thinking about it with them and saying what happens in so many boardrooms, it's happened a lot over the course of my career, is we've heard, we hear people talk about legacy. What do you want your legacy to be? And yeah. the problem with the legacy conversation as I see it is that almost every legacy conversation concludes with the crafting of some narrative in which each one of us features as the hero. 
And the problem with the legacy conversation is that we don't get to actually tell our long-term successors what they're going to say about us. We don't get to give them a story to right. repeat. Instead, we can make decisions. We can use our agency in 2024 to build better organizations, to leave it better than how we found it, begin the steps of that process, take long-term action, embrace the duty of foresight, choose the future. And by doing that, if we continue to do that consistently, if that becomes a part of the way boards think about their role, by the time we get to those successors in 120 months from now, in, in 2034, they will say things about us that are the things we wanted to say, which is they understood the challenges that we faced. They cared about what happened to us. They yeah. made those decisions, but they have to get to that conclusion, not on the basis of what we say, but on the basis of what we do. And I think that to me is the advice that I would give to boards. Ask yourselves the question, what will our successors say about us? And if you're not 100% excited by the answer to that question, then it might be time to start thinking about how to do this differently. I love that. Stop trying to be a hero. Just do your job. Come on. I love it. Make good choices. Make good choices. As selfishly, Jeff, as a CEO, I'm also interested to know your advice to association CEOs. So what advice do you have for us? I think CEOs can ask themselves the same question, but I really think asking what will my successor in this role say about me? What do I think about my predecessor? Right. Be honest about it. And then how do I want to maybe do it the same in some ways if I like some of the things that they did or maybe do it differently based upon what I found when I arrived. But I think more than anything else, what CEOs can do is really encourage their boards to see themselves as stewards, mm -hmm. right? That one of the challenges that I face, I central to the work that I do, is the idea that we need our boards to function from a stewardship perspective rather than a leadership perspective. There is no bigger problem, I think, with our boards then developing people over the course of a very long period of time, it took me 15 years, for example, from when I started it within ASA to get onto the board. If it takes 15 or 20 years for someone to go from I'm a member to I'm on the board, and over the course of that time frame, what you're saying to them is, you're a leader, you're a leader, you're reinforcing the message, you're developed in that way. And then we put 15 or 20 people who we've been telling for the last 15 or 20 years that they're leaders it's no surprise they all want to go in their own individual direction because they've been told that they've been leaders for all this time. The problem is that's not what boards do, right? The board has to function collectively. So as a CEO, I would encourage every CEO to talk with their boards about the importance of functioning from a stewardship perspective rather than a leadership perspective and figure out how to find that collective ability to act, that collective agency, to leave it better than how you found it rather than each individual person coming into the room with their own agenda for how to move things forward. Let's find that common ground. And sometimes that's contained in strategy. Oftentimes it's not, but it's more important. One of the things that I encourage boards to do and then I help them with, for example, is to develop governing intent, right? An expression of the work that they will pursue with regard to stewardship. What is it they want to do as a board collectively? What's their governing intent? I think that can be a hugely powerful way of bringing that collective sense of action, that collective sense of agency, and a collective commitment of the board. So I think that the more stewardship we see on boards, the better off our organizations will be, the better off our boards will be. And frankly, I think it'll, our CEOs will be better off as well because 
they'll be able to frame things up with their boards a little differently than if we're continuing to put it into a leadership frame. That's awesome. It's funny, Jeff. We don't do our orientation until June, but now I'm pumped. Let's go. I'm ready. I want to have things I want to talk about. I want to look at the future with you guys. What to expect. We're stewards, not heroes. I'm not going to wait another four months before I get to do that, though. But at least I've, I've got some good advice. Thank you, Jeff. You need a refresher. Or you just listen to this podcast. Even yeah, I just re- listen to your... this podcast in June. I love it, Jeff. Clearly, you have worked with a lot of boards. Clearly. So. <laughs> yes. Man knows what he's talking about. Yeah, can see it. But we thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to ask you our podcast final question that we ask every one of our guests. And we want to know, you told us that associations found you, which I love so much. So why do you think it's important to be engaged with organizations and associations like TSAE? Why is that important? First, let me say thank you to both of you for inviting me to be part of the podcast. I'm looking forward to the uh, CEO forum in March and looking forward to picking up on some of these themes in the conversation that we'll have in, in my session on Monday, March 4th. Early in my career, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I started out at BPW USA as a meetings assistant. Within a few years, I actually worked for the first time at the Greater Washington Society of Association Executives. This was in the mid-90s. I was there for a little over a year, maybe 12, 13, 14 months. Then I went to grad school. Then I came back after graduate school and worked there again. So I did two tours of duty, if you will, at a society <laughs> of association executives in the early stages of my career. I thought and, I recognized those battle scars. And and it was so valuable for me to, uh, as part of my learning of the association community, I met so many people. I developed a, a fantastic network of colleagues that I'm still friends with today that I've known over the years we've been involved. We were involved in GWSA after I left and then with ASA. And when I went out on my own in 2002, one of the commitments that I made at that time was that I would do everything that I could uh, to assist societies of, of association executives like TSAE and others around the country to be successful. And I would do all that I could as a speaker, as a writer, as someone who has been in the community for a long time. I wanted to be a supporter of the societies of association executives because I really value what they do and what you all do with TSA. So I'm a big believer. I've been to probably close to 25 of the societies of association executives around the country over the course of these last 20 plus years as a speaker and consultant and writer. And I look forward to visiting more over the rest of my career because I believe that organizations like TSA are incredibly important to what goes on in the states, in cities, in regions around the country, things that ASA is a great organization that I have been very loyal to and a member of for a very long time, can't do, relies upon these organizations to do those things, to provide so much value and including things like CEO forum and all the activities that you do in Texas. So I'm very excited. It's been a few years since I've spoken for TSA, pleased to have this chance to speak with the two of you on the podcast and pleased to join you uh, in March. And I certainly think everyone who works in associations in Texas should look for ways to get connected to TSA and be involved in the association's work and benefit from the value that it delivers. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, it it means a lot that you made time for us today. We appreciate you. We're really excited that maybe you haven't been to Texas in a while, but we sure are glad you're coming soon. So we're excited to have you March 4th at our CEO forum. Again, thanks for being here today, Jeff. We really, we appreciate your insight and your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Jeff. Steven, yeah, Stephen, Katie, appreciate it very much and looking forward to seeing you uh, in March. Thanks again to Jeff for joining us on the show today. And of course, thanks to all of you, our 100 percenters, for listening. 
<laughs> Join us each month as we have more conversations with members in the association community. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you'd like more information about the Texas Society of Association Executives, be sure to visit us online at tsae.org. And on behalf of TSAE, I'm Stephen Stout with Katie Marker. See you next time. Bye.